So we're in a series called Red to Black. And we started out talking about it's an attitude. And then the second week we talked about climbing out of the pit. Today we're going to talk about living beneath our means. And next week we're going to talk about generosity. And to start out today, I want to talk about a movement that happened six-ish years ago, this, the Occupy Wall Street movement, this, this concept of the 99% and the 1%. And, and the, the short version of it is that it's a, a talking about this wealthy 1% and then this, this 99%. So I don't know what your thoughts or attitudes or emotions were about that concept or during that time, but I want you just to just kind of think about what they were and hold them for a second as we move in into this next piece, some, some information that I hope kind of maybe resets your expectations a little bit when we talk about living beneath our means. So there's this calculator called givingwhatwecan.org. So I just wanna give you some information here. If you live in the, ni- in the United States and you're a Blue Springs uh, teacher with a starting salary of $33,000, and you have one adult and zero kids, you are in the top 3.1% of the world in terms of income. Now this calculator, um, it adjusts for the cost of living in your country and the size of your household, and then it compares uh, your income to the global average, referring to the median. So, all right, well not everyone goes to college. I'm, well, for, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now let's say you're a Blue Springs teacher at a starting salary of $33,000. You have two adults and two kids in your house you are in the top 13.6% of the world. But not everyone goes to college and gets a good job. And you're right. If you're a minimum wage earner, $7.25 an hour, equating to $15,080 annually, with one adult, no kids in the house, you are in the top 11.1% of the world. But I did go to college, and I studied software development, and you come out making $50,000, and you're by yourself, you're in the top 1.3% of the world. If you're a dink, dual income, no kids, $100,000, two adults, no kids, the top 0.9% of the world. Add four kids to that, two adults, four kids, 4.6%. So the reality is that most of us are in the top 15% of the world. And that's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that position. And from a global perspective, many of us are rich. I think sometimes too often when we read the Bible and we see scripture about the rich, it's too easy to think about Bill Gates, Michael Dell, the Walton family, the founders of Google, Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook guy, are the family down the street that has a bigger house and more stuff than we do. But the reality is, is that in many ways, the person you see in the mirror is rich. To much of the world, our sinful houses are like mansions, spectacles of opulence and indulgence. And I I wanted to open with that, not because I want to make you feel guilty, but because I think it's just important to take a look at some of the stuff we're gonna talk about today through a different lens. The intent is a, is a bit of a reality check to put you in a different position and hopefully a more receptive place. Think about, I know many of us have gone on missions, trip, missions trips, and when you go on a missions trip, a lot of the times it changes your perspective. It puts you in a place where you're more receptive to hear some of the things that God has to tell you. And I hope that that's, I hope that by going outside of the normal or outside of the comfort zone or getting a new perspective, that maybe you can be more receptive when we talk 
about money and what it really means to live beneath our means. Now, having said that, I don't want to trivialize your experience if you're struggling to make ends meet. I know that it's difficult, and I'm sorry for, for people who are really struggling to make it happen, but all I ask today is that you listen with open ears to what God may have to say to you about your attitude towards money and towards spending. And so the first step in this journey is to realize that it's all about that attitude, about that attitude, no trouble. Treble. No? No Megan Trainer fans. All right, well, maybe I just need to have a, a better beat there. But it really, it is all about that attitude. Hatfield talked about this at the very beginning because attitude is so important when we're talking about money. So using this red to black theme, here are some attitudes. Red, it's all mine, so I'll spend it all for me. Black, it all belongs to God, and he's commanded me to manage it well. Red, wants and then needs. Black, needs, and if there's a surplus, then wants. Red, I want it now even though I can't afford it. Black, I can't afford it now, so I'll wait, save, and then buy it when I have it. Red, money is only a present concern. Black, money is a present and future matter. Red, I just spend and then worry about it later. Black, I budget and make a plan for where it goes. So think about your, um, your upbringing. Did you have a family that lived on a budget? Were you taught to live on a budget? Were you taught a healthy attitude towards money? There are many of us who were not. Our attitude towards money and what it represents can be very emotional. Our childhood and early adult experiences can have a significant impact on our attitude towards money. Sometimes that's a good thing, but too often there can be an unhealthy attitude towards money and stuff. And we're going to start talking here about Paul and a passage in Philippians. But before we get there, I want, I want to tell you a little bit about this guy, Paul, who had a significant impact in the New Testament with his writings. He was a man born into a wealthy and, and religious family. And he was very zealous, and he, he learned a lot about the Scripture. And he, he was a Pharisee who who became so entrenched in his viewpoint and set in his ways that he persecuted these new followers of Christ. And he had a radical, life-changing experience with the Lord where he, he turned it around, submitted his life, and ended up following Christ. So it's important to, to realize the amazing story of this man as we read these next words that he wrote in Philippians. It's Philippians 4. 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reason, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. 
I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through, Christ, through him who strengthens me. And the important things that I want to pull out of this, there's a couple of things. And number one, your attitude, your actions, and your deeply held beliefs can change. They can. Paul was a man who was dead set on persecuting Christians. And then his life was radically transformed by the intervention of Jesus. And that same thing can happen with you if you're entrenched in a certain viewpoint about money, if you hold on to things that are maybe unhealthy. Jesus can transform that, and he can change that. And here's the thing. Attitude matters a lot. As we just read in in Philippians here, the secret, Paul's amazing secret to dealing with high times and low times, abundance and, and, and little, is contentment. It's contentment through Christ, understanding where your true strength, your true power, and your true joy really lies. And that is in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in a letter to to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and to a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here's the deal. Money is not evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. If you have stuff, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with a lake house or a boat or a nice truck or a nice house, whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. What matters is your attitudes toward that stuff. Is that stuff what rules your life? Do you use that stuff to somehow further the kingdom of God? Or is it all just about stuff? We need to embrace contentment and reject overconsumption. We just came off Black Friday and are heading into Cyber Monday and this long season where we are blasted with advertisements to buy, 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 spend, spend, spend. Just get it now and worry about it later. Unfortunately, Black Friday in this time often pushes us into personal red where we don't have enough money for the things that we buy. We can be consumed with stuff more, more, more. I just need more stuff. If I just get this next thing, then I'll be content. But we get that thing, and we realize that we're not content. It's that next thing that we need that will make us content. And the cycle continues and continues and continues. And Hebrews chapter 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise you can hang your hat on, that money isn't going to bring or buy you happiness. And yes, I know that you can buy a boat and a truck and a trailer to pull that boat, but it's still not going to make you happy. Paul's making a statement that we all know. We came into this world with nothing, and one day we will die and leave with absolutely nothing. The truth is most of us could trim 5 to 10% off of our budgets by shopping a little more carefully, eating at home a little more frequently, and forcing ourselves to sleep on it before making impulse purchases. And again, I want to emphasize, it is okay to buy 
stuff. It is okay to spend your money as long as you're living within your means. If we're to learn to recognize all that God's given us and have thankful hearts, we don't need the latest and the greatest. We don't need to try and keep up with everyone around us. If we'll stop being jealous of what other people have and embrace gratitude, then we'll actually have more when we choose to live on less. Which brings us to our next point. Live on less than you make. See, all of us know this, but few of us actually behave this way. You may be familiar with the two kinds of people in this world, the haves and the have-nots. But the third usually gets left out, the have-not paid for what they have. And the Bible gives us some clarity when it comes to our spending. In Proverbs chapter 21, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it all. So the translation here is, the bank account has money in it. The wise person doesn't spend it all. There's something left at the end of the month. But it says, the foolish man devours all that he has. They spend it all. They eat it all. And the consequences can be very, very emotional. There was a clip of, a, I don't know if you've ever seen Jimmy Kimmel and Halloween candy. He, I couldn't bear to actually play it because parents are lying to their kids and kids are crying. Basically what they say is they get all this Halloween candy and then the parent will come up and say, hey, just want to let you know that we ate all your Halloween candy last night. And these kids just lose it and they melt down and it's pretty horrible to watch. And then they say, oh, it's just a joke and some of the kids are really mad and some of the kids are just happy that their candy isn't eaten. And it's kind of funny when we're talking about candy. But it's another thing when we're talking about our future savings, our kids' college funds, money that we'll need because something is going to break, need repairs, and will need to be replaced. So rather than practicing delayed gratification, we feel like we deserve everything right away. Sometimes young couples want to have everything their parents had and the, everything their parents worked 25 years to get. They think they need it in the first five years of their marriage. So if we don't move to a place of postponing pleasure, we'll one day look back and wish we did. It's asking two questions. Is this a want or a need? And can I afford it? We've convinced ourselves we can't afford to live without many things. And the truth is, honestly, we can't afford to live with it. Unless we learn to live within our means, we're going to bury ourselves deeper and deeper in debt. And this will harm our ability to use what we've been entrusted to further the kingdom of God. So let me give you a couple of really simple tips when it comes to living beneath our means. The best car is the car that you own. It's amazing how quickly the depreciating value of a new car is as soon as you drive it off of the lot. Eat at home more often. It is way cheaper to eat at home than it is to eat anywhere else. Do a high V meal club. It's amazing and really good. Rent versus going to the movie theater. Coffee from your coffee maker is a tiny bit cheaper than the daily fee of star five bucks. Family game night is way cheaper than going to Chuck E. Cheese. Going hiking, riding bikes, and getting creative is more cost effective than the typical conventional entertainment, entertainment typically we subject our bank accounts to. If you get a raise, live on your current salary and save that, that new amount. Most of us can live within our means, regardless of what our means might be, if we're willing to discipline ourselves and practice a little self-control. Proverbs 21, 
Verse five, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And the best way to discipline ourselves and practice self-control is to establish the dreaded B word, a budget. A budget is a plan. It's telling your money where it's going to go. And it's biblical. In Proverbs 27, verse 23, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds, for riches do not last forever and does a crown endure to all generations. We have to pay attention to what we have. We have to, we have to take account of what we have and we have to manage it well, right? A budget is really, really important and it works. And here's the truth. Personally, it, a budget radically changed my life, radically in 2008, my wife attended uh, Financial Peace University, and it was in the third session called Dumping Debt. I was sitting there, and she was talking about this culture of debt and, like, the various ways that it's marketed to us and, and how we kind of get ensnared in it. I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, like, in the pit of your stomach where it starts to get warm and kind of, like, spreads outward when you start to get kind of fired up about something. That's, that's what I felt like. I just felt this, this, like, burning, like, I've been duped. Why did no one tell me about this five years ago? How could I get out of high school without being taught this? How could I make it through college, these higher institutions, without understanding some of these basic principles? And when Dave Ramsey talked about dumping debt, and I don't know, raise your hand. Have you heard the cheetah story when he, when he tells everybody to run and get out of debt? Not many people. I'll just summarize very quickly. He talks about how it's an attitude and how you have to run and you have to get out. And it was just like a fire was lit and I was pumped up. We came walking out of there and I, we had just purchased a new van on credit and taken out a loan for it. I was like, I was like, Miriam, we are selling this van. We're selling it all. Everything's going. We're going home. We're just going to start taking stuff. We're going to sell it. We're going to sell it. We're going to sell it. We're getting out of debt tomorrow. This thing is done. Miriam's like, Pump the brakes. Hold on a second. There may be another alternative, all right? And so we, we went through this process where we established a budget, budget. We set goals, and we figured out how can we get from here to there in a responsible way, all right? I want to I show you something. From 2008, this is April 2008. The title is Budget Committee Meeting. What you see here is an agenda. We followed Dave Ramsey's plan for setting a budget, okay? I am a nerd, Okay, this is true, and it's okay. If you are a fellow nerd, it is okay. You can do this. I made a budget. I passed this sheet to Miriam. There are times on here how long I have to talk. Three minutes. That's all I get to talk about the budget so that I don't bore her to death, okay, because I love spreadsheets. I just slide it across to her. She looks at it. We talk about it. She makes some changes. And then right here, signatures. Signatures. My signature. And my wife's signature, March 28th, 2008, we signed this. It was a pact. We are one. We are in agreement. We are going to spend our money together. Spend our money together. We're a team. We're united. And we can do this. Dave Ramsey says that dealing with money is 80% behavior and 20% head knowledge. And most of us know what we need to do. We're just not doing it. When Miriam and I started out budgeting, our groceries, you can see we had a funding plan and a spending plan right here. We had my wife, myself, one kid. Abby was about 
two, three, and we had Luke who was nursing. Our grocery budget for per month, $300. We, said, we sat down and said, here's what we can do because we're gonna take the excess and we're getting out of debt. We are not gonna be chained, we are gonna be free, and we are gonna use our money in a way that allows us to bless other people. And we can't do that when we're carrying around this ball and chain. Luke chapter 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So the primary point of this scripture is not about money. It's about the cost and what you need to think about before you decide to follow Christ. It lets you know that it's going to be difficult, and you need to analyze, and you need to count the cost, and you need to be ready to go all in and commit to Jesus. But what I think is interesting is that he uses real-life examples. And I think we can draw something else from this. When you look when he's talking about counting the cost, he said, in, in a negative way, he's basically saying, which of you will sit down and start to begin something without knowing if you can do it? Which one of you will not take, examine your flocks and see where your money is? Which, which, which of you will actually not plan to complete the whole project? Which one of you will continue to go through life without a plan? People will call you foolish, and it is. It's crazy. And again, it's about attitude. Going back to this budget, when, when we, I put a sign on our garage door and it said, debt is dumb in huge capital letters. And it had our balance on there, okay? And I'm some, somewhat of an intense fella. And when I go in, I typically go all in. And so I would walk by that garage door, okay? And I would just look at it. And sometimes I would just kind of pace in front of it when I'd get it before I go to work. And I'd just be like, you're going down, you're going down. And because I was a wrestler and I'm used to butting my head on things, sometimes I'd just open the door and bam, just beat my head right on that sign, okay? So I had withdrawal about hitting things with my head and that helped to satisfy it, okay? But it was just an attitude of you don't, you don't control us. You don't control us. We control our money. We control it. And we get to choose what we do with it. September 2008. Corey presents budget, three minutes, top line. Next thing, paying off the van this month. My wife's writing, yeah, baby, two exclamation points. With a plan, you can make crazy things happen. With a, a plan and God, you can make miraculous things happen. Some people view budgets and budget committee meetings as, as restrictive and a budget will cramp my style. I argue they help to sell, set healthy boundaries and they actually set you free. And here's one example of that. So I was a Microsoft money guy. I tracked everything. Oh, I knew where everything went, but I had no control over it. All I did was just analyze it after the fact. Miriam, she's not an outrageous shopper. Miriam's my wife. She's not an outrageous shopper. But when she would come home with, with clothes, you know what the first thing I thought of was? How much money did you spend on that? I, oh, that looks nice. Or, wow, that, that's really great. I'm no, all I, was, all I was concerned about is, you spent how much on that? 
Okay, and here's how a budget transformed that experience. I know that Miriam has a set amount to spend on clothing. I don't care if she buys one dress for $500 or a whole bunch of things worth $5. I don't care because she has her limits and she knows how to stay within them. And so now I can focus on, wow, that is a great purchase. That looks really good. I'm so happy that you were able to get that. My concern isn't about how much she spent. It's just a whole new attitude and a way to look at things. To me, it was freeing. And I think if you will jump into a budget and you will earnestly and diligently try to follow one, that you will experience the same kind of freedom. The next point is that it's important to pay off debt as quickly as possible. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This was, this was the sermon last week, and uh, you know Hatfield talked about the importance of that, so I don't have much more to add. But what we do need to do is save and invest for the future. According to a federal reserve report, nearly half of Americans couldn't cover a $400 emergency expense without borrowing the money or selling something. More than half of households have less than one month's worth of income in a readily available savings account, far from the six-month emergency fund many experts recommend. Now, when I say save and invest, I don't mean to hoard everything and be selfish. What I'm telling you is that emergencies are going to happen, okay? I, I'm not a weatherman. I'm not a meteorologist. I don't know the ins and outs of weather, but here's what I can tell you. It's going to rain someday in the future. It is. And you know what you need? An umbrella, okay? Same thing for your personal finances. Something is going to break. Your car, your furnace, you need some sort of supplies for something. Something is going to go wrong, and you need to be prepared for it. You can plan for them. We talked about the rich farmer the first week of the series. The guy said, I have so much stuff. Look at my storehouse. I'm going to tear it down, and I'm going to build new, bigger ones so that I can sit there and look at all of my stuff and sit back and do nothing. Okay? This is not what we're talking about. I'm not saying save and invest because it's all about you. Like this life is it, and you should put your trust in money and not God. That, that's not what I'm telling you. When I speak of savings, I'm, going to give, I'm not going to give you a, a for no risk, get rich quick scheme. When I say savings, I mean budgeting for your savings. And the only way we can do this is if we live beneath our means. In the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us a story about Joseph. And his life story is remarkable. And I'm going to put a plug in for Kids Quest here. All right, we hit this series a, a couple months ago here recently. And I teach in Kids Quest, all right? And I learn a lot about God in Kids Quest, okay? They have a curriculum that is amazing. And no offense to Hatfield, but sometimes I get some more out of Kids Quest than I do right here. And that's nothing against Hatfield. It's just how amazing the Kids Quest curriculum is. So if you're looking for a place to get plugged in, and you feel like, oh, I don't know, I, I'm not good enough, I don't have, I, I'm not a teacher, I, I don't know theology, hey, go give it a try. Everything is laid out for you, and you will learn a lot. So we, we were learning about Joseph, and as he was shipped down to uh, Egypt, his brother sold him into slavery. Like I said, an amazing life story, way more than I have time to get into today. But the, the point that I want to draw from this is that he interpreted a dream that went basically like, you're going to have seven years of plenty, and there's going to be seven years of little. 
And what did, it, what did they do? They built storehouses and they saved and they prepared and they planned. And then when the, when the years of little came, they were able to bless and to feed and to rescue, okay? And this is what God calls us to do with our resources, to be wise, to prepare for the future. Not, not for us, not so, that, not so that we can say, see, look what I have, but so that we can be ready. We can have that financial margin when God says, like we saw in, that, in the video, take that purse and give it to that person because that's what I'm telling you to do. It's wise. It is a wise thing to do to save. Proverbs 13, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. We're not talking about winning the lottery here because the truth is there is a large number of people who when they win the lottery blow it all on crazy stuff and it's just gone. It's gone. What I'm talking about is living beneath your means little by little saving your money. Jesus told us a story about a man that was entrusted with some money and he buried it in the ground to keep it safe and Jesus condemned him for being lazy. He said the very least the man could have done was to put it in a bank where it might have earned some interest. That's a wise thing to do. So even if you're clawing tooth and nail to get out of debt, it is wise to put a little something in savings each time you get paid to avoid going into debt even further when a new unexpected need arises. Right? There's, the, there's the compound interest, right? There's time value of money, about when you start early, the way that that money grows. Right? There are concepts that, that you can use to help build a future. Dave Ramsey in his financial peace course talks about seven baby steps to financial freedom. And so there are different strategies, there are different methods that you can use, and I'm not gonna stand here and tell you that Dave Ramsey is the only way, okay? It is a way that works for a lot of people. And so if you don't have any other place to start, here's a good place to start, okay? Step one, $1,000 in an emergency fund. Step two, pay off all debt except the house, utilizing the debt snowball. Take your smallest debt, and then to your largest debt, paying off your smallest debt, okay? And one of the lines that I love that he says is people will get into, get into arguments about, well, I should pay the highest interest off first because that allows me to say the and they go into this math reasoning. And, and, well, if you could do math, you wouldn't be in debt in the first place, all right? So it's way more about attitude than it is about head knowledge. It's about attitude. Step three, three to six months worth of expenses and savings. Step four, invest 15% of your household income into Roth IRAs and pre-tax retirement plans. Step five, college funding for children. Step six, pay off your home early. And step seven, build wealth, build wealth and give generously. And you know what the most amazing part of that is? Give generously. Doesn't it feel good to have a plan that's not focused on you, but that's focused on other people? To have a God who says, here's stuff I've given you, but it's not all about you. It's about other people. It's about what you can do to help spread what my son did for you, the price that he paid on that cross. These steps, they work. They just do. They work. Gateway offers a Financial Peace University course, one that was designed by Dave Ramsey. So if you're interested in something like that, if you need a place to start, you can see me after the service, or you can see Susan or Mike Style. Susan, up there, just wave your hands, turn around and look. If you want, if you want some place to find the next step, 
you can go there. Casey Stokes, raise your hand, wave. Financial coach, also knows a lot about these steps. If you need some place to start, go talk to one of those two people after service. They would be more than happy to help point you in the right direction. The next point here is stick with the plan. Make a decision and live with conviction. Oh, I'm sorry. The next class for FPU is January 27th. Okay, so if you, you can write that down if, if that's something that interests you. Create the habit to establish a budget, to live beneath your means, to pay off debt as soon as possible, embrace contentment, and reject consumerism. Save and invest for the future. And lastly, stick with the plan. Proverbs 21, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You need to be diligent in these matters. And parents, we've got to teach our children about a proper attitude towards money. Because if we don't, then they will chase the current of our culture, and it will lead them to great harm, unnecessary stress, and a strain on every part of their life. I have seen lots of examples of parents doing a really great job handling money with their kids, setting up plans, getting paid for chores. And, and one of the things that just makes me like super proud of a parent is in a store, you see a kid just screaming and crying, I need that toy, I want that toy. And no, hey, we're gonna, I've heard parents say, we're going to wait. I want, you to, I want you to think about it tonight and we'll come back. And if you still want it tomorrow, then we'll talk about it. And 95% of the time, the kid doesn't want it the next day. They're caught up in the moment. I'm so proud of parents that have, that have the courage to impart that kind of wisdom to their children. I'm thankful that, that we have parents who, who, who teach their kids to, to work and to earn and to not just be given. And those are attitudes that we need to instill into our children. You can't afford to wing it. You need a plan, and you need to stick with that plan. So we're going to move into a closing portion here. And this is a series about money. Okay, and we're not afraid at Gateway to talk about money because Jesus talked a lot about money. And this is, this is probably one of the most important points, important points that I want you to walk away with. Here at Gateway, we're not after your money. We're not. And I can tell you that. I'm a trustee on the leadership team. I guarantee you, we're not after your money. We're after something much, much more important. Something so much more valuable. Your soul. At Gateway, we're after your soul. We're after your neighbor's soul, and we're after all of the lost sheep in Blue Springs that don't know Jesus. That's what we're after. That's what we chase. And why do we chase that? Because that's what God has told us to chase. That's what God is after. God longs to find you, to rescue you, and to have you follow him. It's why he sent Jesus as a sacrifice and a savior. Now, are we going to ask you to give your money in a more appropriate and biblical way? Yes, but it's not because we care about your money. It's because we care about you and your attitude towards money and how it can affect your relationship with Jesus. Your giving is more about you and your attitude than you realize. We just use the money 
to help build people unleashed to pursue Jesus in community and on a dangerous, dangerous mission. Our God is gracious and generous. He's the owner of everything. And God wants us to be good stewards, good managers of what we do with what he gives. Because one day we're going to have to give an account for what we did with what he gave us. Now here's the truth. I don't understand everything about the second coming. There's a whole lot of things I actually don't understand about the Bible, okay? But I don't know what that looks like. But here's two questions, two questions that you need to have an answer to. The first question, what did you do with my son? Did you accept Jesus' death on a cross and your place for your sin, or did you reject it? Did you accept Jesus' invitation to rescue you forgive you of your sin and to be reconnected in a personal relationship with God. God loves you and sent his son to die for you. You are worth the death of his son. He knows everything about you and God still pursues a relationship with you. You can choose Jesus and have a life or you can ignore him, reject him, and be separated from him for eternity. The second question is, What did you do with all that I gave you? God will look at us and he'll want us to give an account for what we did with what he gave us. He's going to ask us, what did you do with the time, the opportunities, the gifts, the abilities, and the money that I entrusted to you? And here's what I want to hear. From Matthew 25, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And this only happens when you make Jesus your savior, the forgiver of your sin, Lord, the leader of your life, and live our lives for something greater than just our comfort and our happiness. Gateway, let's recognize that God's the owner And we're simply managers. Let's give to God first. Let's spend, save, and invest in a way that honors God and blesses us.